Hello and welcome to The Last Best Hope, a podcast from the RAI, Oxford's Institute for the Study of America and its place in the world. My name is Adam Smith. In this present crisis, government is not the solution to our problem. Government is the problem. The era of big government is over. If we want America's job creators to do what they do best, we need to get government out of the way. Freedom and free enterprise are what create jobs, not government. We need to cut spending now. So please, send us some spending cuts. From the 1980s until quite recently, the mood music of American politics was to roll back the public programs created during Franklin Roosevelt's New Deal. Government is not the solution to our problems, Ronald Reagan famously said in 1981. Government is the problem. But now, taxes and spending are rising, and the New Deal, maybe in the guise of the Green New Deal, is cool again. Democrats may be tempted to imagine that government once more has become the solution to our problems, rather than the problem itself. On both the right and the left, government seems to be back. Free market, small government conservatives are on the defensive. It's harder than ever to make the case against spending, after all, when a Republican president, Trump, and Congress ran up such vast, eye-watering deficits. And yet, polls show that faith in government remains low, while vicious polarisation, partisanship, stymies any 1930s-style attempt or 1960s Lyndon Johnson-era attempt, for that matter, to use government to try to bring the country together. To talk about these issues, I'm joined once again by Eric Rauchway. Unquestionably the leading expert on the New Deal era, Eric is a prolific author, including, most recently, of Why the New Deal Matters. And also by Sid Milkis of the Miller Centre at the University of Virginia, an expert on the presidency and social movements. Sid, let me let me start with you. It was 25 years ago, 1996, when President Clinton declared the end of welfare as we know it when he signed the... That was at the time seen as the final nail in the coffin of the New Deal. And for a long time, historians wrote, well, they still do write about the rise and fall of the New Deal order, presuming that there were structures and policies and assumptions embedded into American politics, which had outlasted the New Deal era itself and had continued even through into the Reagan presidency and beyond. And it was Bill Clinton, a Democratic president, who killed it. That was 25 years ago. How, Sid, have we got to the stage now where President Biden, another Democratic president, is embracing the New Deal? How did the New Deal become cool again? (laughs) Uh, Well, I think really, Adam, you go back to the Great Recession of 2009-2010, the election of Barack Obama, our first black president. And that program that Obama pursued didn't reach the dimensions of the New Deal, but it did some important things, particularly the Affordable Care Act, Obamacare as we call it, which is an important extension of, of health care benefits. The other thing, of course, is the um, pandemic 
which some people say ripped the band-aids off of economic insecurities and inequality in the United States. And that was aggravated, of course, by the killing of George Floyd and the, the Black Lives Matter protests, which really not only brought back some memories of the New Deal, but also the Great Society. So I would say that the New Deal has not only become cool again, but the Great Society has become cool as well. And I, I think one of Biden's issues, because these programs are very different, the Great Society focusing on race in a way the New Deal avoided race. But one of Biden's challenges is really to figure out the best practices of the New Deal and the Great Society for, for the problems of our own time. So, Sid, you're talking there about the, the Great Society was the phrase used by President Lyndon Johnson mm -hmm. in the 1960s. And Lyndon Johnson, another Democratic president from Texas, saw himself certainly as the heir to Franklin Roosevelt. He'd come into politics in the aftermath of President Roosevelt and, and the New Deal. Eric, Sid there's mentioned three interlinked things, race, social protest, a pandemic which has created a, a sense of national crisis, and the Great Recession, which cast doubt on the viability of the American capitalist system. Would you agree that those are the, the three elements that have made the New Deal cool again? Yeah, I think that's clearly the big pieces of the puzzle. I think I would add in another thing, which is, of course, that from about the end of Johnson's presidency until around the time that uh, Biden came into office, the reigning paradigm was to be skeptical, I think, of the New Deal, of Keynesianism. I think a lot of scholars now call this neoliberalism for good or ill. That is sort of the term that we have is sort of leaning back towards the market and away from public solutions to problems. And that set of policies led both within the United States and around the world to increasing inequality and instability at the level of finances and of macroeconomic policy. And I think that for many people, although perhaps not the majority of the governing classes, either in the US or the UK, but for many people, it has grown to be clear that this is not sustainable. And so there's turning toward or back toward older models of managing modern societies. So, Eric, you're casting this in a in a kind of long, over a long perspective here. Can we kind of back up and perhaps just clarify for listeners what it was that the New Deal did? What is it when we're talking about the legacy of the New Deal and the question of whether the during the period of neoliberalism, whether or not we want to use that phrase, what was it that was trying to be dismantled? Can you just itemize for us what were the key elements of the New Deal and its legacy? The thing first and foremost that we want to remember about the New Deal is that it's a response to a crisis occasioned by the Great Depression. So it's an economic crisis that reaches the scope of, you know, approximately one in four American workers unemployed. Of those who still have work, about half or more than half are underemployed. They have part-time jobs because they're sharing jobs in order to make income go round. So you have this essential complete collapse of the American economy, whether in farming or in industry. And it's also a global phenomenon. There are collapses of banks, both domestically and internationally, and currencies, which begin to go off the gold standard in the course of the Great Depression. So in the scores three years between 1929, when the, the collapse begins, in 1932, you have this utter devastation, economic, and it is followed by a crisis in democracy. So there is an acceleration of illiberal tendencies around the world most prominently Nazi Germany, but elsewhere. So you have the crisis of the economy and you have the crisis of the political order that are sort of the twin crises that the New Deal is designed to address. 
So how does that all mean, uh, Sid, how did that all mean that the New Deal has shaped the American experience? I mean, there are key programs, we bring this down to specifics, social security, for example. I mean, what would you outline as being the elements of the New Deal program that people have lived through and have shaped the lives of Americans through the 20th century and into the present day? So I would say there's three really important programs. The core program of the New Deal is social security, which has become the biggest program in American politics. And the biggest part of that is providing support for the aged. Well, the New Deal was get dedicated to strengthening the nuclear family. And a lot of families during the Depression particularly were struggling to help the elderly relatives. The second important part, and this is also in the Social Security Act, is unemployment insurance, which, as Eric mentioned, was really important given the 25% unemployment during the New Deal. And in major cities, it was much greater than that, up to 50% in, say, Philadelphia, where I come from. And the third thing was about labor rights. The New Deal really launches a strong industrial union movement in the United States. And the the Wagner Act, named after Senator Robert Wagner from New York, was a third important part of the New Deal. And it provided that uh, workers had the right to collective bargaining, which enabled them to form unions. And if I could just say one more thing of a more general note, I think there's an important cultural change that comes with the New Deal. The United States is uncommonly committed to what Herbert Hoover in the 1928 election called rugged individualism, individual responsibility. And for the New Deal, Adam, there wasn't much of a welfare state. Most of the support for those who faced economic insecurity came from state and local governments, and that aid was very meager. Roosevelt promoted what he called a new idea of individualism. And this idea was that the government had the responsibility to protect individual men and women from the uncertainties, the terrifying uncertainties of the marketplace, and also protect them from the abuses of big government. And part of that was a new idea of rights, the right to security, which is at the center of the democratic platform of 1936, the election that really confirmed the New Deal as an enduring part of American politics. So, Eric, the cultural shift that Sid is talking about there it's about the idea that government has responsibility for the weakest in society or that all of us in a society even in a society committed to capitalism can fall on hard times and there are circumstances in which all of us may need a helping hand can you talk a little bit about how that has affected americans attitudes to government over the years When were the maximum times of faith in government? And what did that mean to people to have faith in government? And what were the circumstances over the last near century in which faith in government fell to lower levels? Well, I think you put your finger on the right kind of language there. There's a perennial question on the Gallup survey going back to the middle 20th century where they ask, do you trust the federal government to the government of the United States to do the right thing? Trust in government question is what they call it. And it was at its peak sometime in the middle 1960s, which I think is sort of where you have the uh, the goodwill of the New Deal and the Second World War, and then running into the period of the civil rights movement and the war on poverty and the, uh, the competence or apparent competence in standing up to the Soviet threat, as it would have been seen at the time, right, that all of these things had created widespread public trust in government in the 60 and 70 percent levels. And this begins with the New Deal that 
Roosevelt has all kinds of ways that he addresses this question, tries to inculcate a set of values rhetorically. One of the key ones is the concept of interdependence, of course, that he likes to use that word to say that we can't have the economy recover unless it recovers for everyone everywhere, which he ultimately means not only within the United States, but around the world that he carries that policy into the organization of the Allies policy during the war in terms of lend-lease, and then going forward after the war in terms of developing the post-war agreements, the Bretton Woods agreements, and the other agreements that underlie the United Nations organization, so that you have this architecture of values that are usually summarized in Roosevelt's four freedoms, you know, the freedom of speech, freedom of worship, freedom from want, freedom from fear, that then get incorporated into the Atlantic Charter, the agreement with Churchill, and into other wartime documents as the basis for fundamental human rights. And this is so powerful as the idea of the thing that the Allies fought for. Let's set aside the question of what that's actually what the Allies were fighting for. But let's just, that's a very powerful idea. So that, for example, during the 1950s, when Dwight Eisenhower, who's a Republican president, is faced with defiance from the governor of Arkansas in 1957 of a Supreme Court decision, he invokes the concept that we fought for human rights in the war. He takes Roosevelt's mission, he carries it forward as the reason to use the United States Army to enforce civil rights in Arkansas, right? So it's it's a very powerful concept that it lasts through this Cold War period into the Kennedy administration, even into the Johnson administration. And it's really the Vietnam War and then Watergate and then a subsequent series of crises, mostly of political confidence, that really kill off that trust in government measure. If you look again at that Gallup number, it falls off a cliff with the so-called credibility gap during the Johnson administration and talking about Vietnam, then with the Pentagon Papers, then with Watergate, and it really just sort of craters in the 1970s during the presidency of Jimmy Carter. There's a brief uplift when Reagan comes in with his sort of bonhomie and his general spirit of confidence. And then it tanks again after the revelation of the Iran-Contra scandals. It comes up briefly again during the Clinton presidency. And then it falls again with the impeachment at the end of the presidency. It comes up a little bit in 2001 with faith in the Bush administration after the attacks and the sort of the rally around the flag effect. And then it falls off a cliff again. And so it remains quite low now. I don't know what the number is, but it's probably in the high 20s or low 30 percentage points. So that effect that lasted from about the time of Roosevelt's election into uh, the end of the Johnson administration, more or less, has then, you know, sort of we've expended all of that capital, if you like, ever since then. Thanks, Eric. That's a brilliant summary. Sid, listening to Eric there, I'm just thinking there is something something weird started happening, though, because as faith in government, as Eric was describing it, was falling, uh, people still like getting their social security checks. They still like their Medicare. I mean, I remember seeing a, a tea party. Remember them, the tea party? That seems like a long time ago. A tea party protest. I mean, this this was became a famous thing at the time in which people were holding up signs with along the lines of keep big government out of my Medicare, keep big government out of my social security. Oh, yeah. So it's almost as if those New Deal, those original New Deal programs had become so embedded in American culture that people feel that they owned them and are not crediting them, they're detaching them in some strange way from the notion of big state. How does that happen? Well, part of it goes back to Roosevelt's idea of new rights. So Roosevelt knew there was a great gravitational pull against expanding government in the United States, even during the Great Depression. 
it was difficult. And there was a lot of resistance from Southern Democrats in his party. But he felt that the way to circumvent that resistance in a way was to define these programs as rights. And therefore, he, th- he felt it was very important that Social Security be set up as a social insurance program, that people paid into it. And Social Security was set up as a pretty regressive kind of program, the way the tax system is paid up. It's, it's independent, for example, of income. And economists would say to Rosa, come into the office and say, this program, the way you're funding Social Security is regressive. And Roosevelt would look at them patiently and say, I know, but that's economics. <laughs> this new idea of rights is politics all the way through. Then he says, no damn politician will be able to take away my Social Security program. And that was, that was in a way, there's a sacrifice to equality there. But it was a brilliant understanding of how to circumvent the resistance uh, to government programs in the United States. And, and Johnson, when he pushed the creation of Medicare, which added health care benefits to Social Security and Medicaid also for the disadvantaged, built it on the, on the same model. And so people view Social Security and Medicare as part of their rights the government has no right to interfere with. And Reagan found this out when he tried to reduce Social Security by a relatively small amount. I think it was early retirement benefits were going to be reduced from 80 to 65 percent. It didn't get one vote in the Senate, even though the Republicans had gained support in Congress in the 1980 elections. And so that's when Tip O'Neill, who was the Democratic leader, the Speaker of the House at this time, jousted with Reagan over his attempts to mess with these entitlements. He uh, called Social Security the third rail of American politics. And your listeners from New York will know the third rail is that rail in the middle of the subway. And if you touch it, you die. There's a third rail on the London Underground as well, Sid. That's, I'm sorry that's, for my... That's, that's my a, no, no, that's fine. It's a, it's a cosmopolitan <laughs> that's reference. I'm, I'm glad that's a cosmopolitan That's no problem. Um, Eric, I want to return us to, to where I started, which is Joe Biden. President Biden is, is not quite old enough, I don't think, to have voted for Franklin Roosevelt, but he... He certainly seems to personally identify with him. He delivered a campaign speech in Warm Springs, Georgia, which was, of course, FDR's retreat. Do you want to make a comment about what do you think it is about Franklin Roosevelt as a person or what it is about the, the spirit of the New Deal that seems to be appealing to President Biden? Well, I think uh, there are a couple of factors. The first of all is the pandemic which I think Sid said sort of revealed a lot of the existing inequities in American society, as well as being a crisis into itself, to which the then Trump administration appeared utterly inadequate, right? There was simply no plan. uh, There was a lot of rhetoric and there was not a lot of action. And so Biden could do essentially what Roosevelt did, which is come into office with a group of people who were dedicated to using existing government powers to address this immediate crisis. In Roosevelt's case, it was uh, an epidemic of bank failures. Uh, In Biden's case, it's a literal epidemic, right? And so they came in immediately with the vaccine rollout plans and sort of demonstrated competence and improved people's opinion of how government worked. The other crisis, which is, again, parallel to what uh, the United States was experiencing in 1932-33, is one of democracy that was, of course, heightened by the January 6th insurrection. And this is something clearly that Biden is aware of and has evoked several times that Biden has said, you know, for Roosevelt, the New Deal was about restoring people's faith in democracy. That's a very important point to make that by putting people to work, you're showing the people that the government works for them, even as they work for the government. Yeah, I'm going to come back to that. 
particular point in a moment. I said, I mean, just building on what Eric's just been saying there, I mean, Roosevelt won in 1932 with a landslide, a much bigger victory in popular and electoral college votes than Biden had in November 2020. But one of the things that the New Deal did was to help create a new democratic party, welding together different constituencies who benefited from these policies. Is that, do you think, part of the objective in the mind of Biden and the people around him, that something similar may be possible now? I think they they hope so. I mean, the New Deal Democratic Party, as I alluded to before, is a fragile alliance between Southern and Northern Democrats. And what held that together was a laser-like focus on economic and foreign policy issues, which didn't alienate Southern Democrats. What broke that coalition apart, and Eric spoke about the 1960s, was Lyndon Johnson's, I think, heroic pursuit of civil rights and his willingness to confront the race issue, which in a way FDR was not willing to do because he had to hold this coalition together to advance the New Deal. And so the New Deal Democratic Party begins to hemorrhage the Southern Democrats in the 1960s and becomes more a party of disadvantaged uh, cultural groups in a way and really becomes committed to what people, I think, unnecessarily negatively put it, identity politics, cultural issues, advancing the civil rights revolution, which is extended to immigrants as well during the Great Society, the passage of an important immigration reform. I think what Biden is trying to do, and there's there's kind of two strategies to put the Democratic Party back together, and I'm not sure these are compatible. I'd like to hear Eric comment on this. Is one, win the white working class back. This is one of the things I think that really attracts him to Roosevelt, because Roosevelt emphasized so much helping the working class. He's Joe Biden from Scranton. Oftentimes when he goes off to campaign for policies, it's to places like Scranton or Detroit, where there was once a strong working class. And some of the, like the child care credits in this new bill, and uh, there's undergoing protracted debate. I, I think that's a very polite word <laughs> that are used, would, would help the white working class. But another part of his program, I think, is to strengthen a post-New Deal coalition that sometimes called the Coalition of the Ascendant, and this being young people, uh, minorities, people from the LGBTQ community, and and professionals, particularly educated women. That coalition, Adam, I think represents the maturing of the great society, coalition that Lyndon Johnson began to put together. But the demographics have now shifted enough in, in America the diversification of our population, that a lot of people have suggested that that might be the foundation of a new Democratic Party going forward. But but as we've learned, and I'll stop here, that demographics are not destiny. Eric? There are two factors, at least, that are problems for the Biden administration, which I, I perhaps are so obvious they don't uh, uh, bear mentioning them, but we, we, we probably should talk about the, the obvious things. Mention as them well. anyway, yeah. Eric. Let's, let's, let's right. label what are, what are Biden's two big main problems. I mean, on the one hand, Sid's right that, and you're right, that Roosevelt had huge majorities that only got bigger over the 1934 and the 1936 election. To some extent, though, those majorities are illusory because many of them are Southern Democrats. And so they're very keen on having infrastructure in their region. They're very uh, down on union rights. They're very down on anything that might look like civil rights, even just to higher wages for black workers. So that those those coalitions aren't really solid 
Biden's majorities, though, are so small uh, that it's 50 votes in the Senate plus one. You don't have the way of dragging along the conservatives in your coalition the way that Roosevelt did. I mean, Roosevelt's New Dealers could always say the bill is going to pass. You know, do you want to be on it or not? Uh, Biden's in the position of saying, as he rather unfortunately acknowledged, I think, last week that, you know, Manchin or Cinema might as well be president themselves, you know, that that there is no guarantee that the bill will pass without them. And therefore, things have to be dialed back. The other feature of this situation that didn't pertain in the 1930s is the way the filibuster has become embedded in the Senate has made it necessary for the Biden administration to pack everything into a single bill in such a way that almost nobody knows what's in it, right? I mean, this this is this sort of the game that they're playing. In order to get around the filibuster, they're allowed to pass a special bill through the reconciliation process, and everything is jammed into it, except those things the Senate parliamentarians said couldn't be in. Which means, in consequence, hardly anybody, if you talk to them on the street, or even if they're political junkies, could actually tell you what's in the bill right now. They just know it's a big, fat bill. The Roosevelt administration didn't have this problem, They could put a bill that was a farm relief bill, and it was a farm relief bill, and everybody could see that it was a farm relief bill. And if you were going to oppose it, you had to say, I'm against farm relief. They could put a bill that was, you know, the industrial recovery bill, which had a massive public works agenda in it. And if you oppose it, you had to say, I'm against the massive public works agenda. Now, with this one bill, you know, it gives a rhetorical advantage to opponents to say, I'm just against, as as Manchin says, the entitlement society or whatever abstraction you say that you're against. And so the mechanism of the filibuster has made it hard to have a substantive debate about the president's agenda. So do you think, I mean, Eric is referring there to, you know, one guy from West Virginia and one woman from Arizona who appear to be running American politics and holding the fate of the nation in their hands at the moment. I mean, that's clearly not a situation that Franklin Roosevelt faced. Would it be true to say it was analogous to conservative white Southern Democrats in the 1930s, but imagining them to hold even greater power than they did at the time? I mean, is that the nature of the problem that Biden is facing? Well, I think um, the Democratic Party is a much more diverse party than the Republican Party. And so he's got to deal with the more with these two wings of his party, one which is more pragmatic and is wondering, why the hell are we not passing this, this infrastructure bill, $500 billion, that would deal with all these massive problems we have, not only with traditional infrastructure like bridges, but also would strengthen our internet system and also create uh, climate uh, electric uh, stations to, to enhance the production of, of electric car and buying of electric. But there's the progressive wing of the party is determined they're not going to vote for that bill. And the resistance is really coming in the House here from the progressive caucus until what is called the human infrastructure bill is passed. And one thing that the progressive wing of the party is really pushing hard for is some kind of ambitious climate change policy. So I would just mention that this division is very important because a critical part of building a new Democratic Party is that last element of the coalition of the the ascendant that I mentioned, professionals, who were really critical to Biden's victory in 2020. So, for example, in Pennsylvania, Biden didn't flip Pennsylvania because he did better among people of color than Hillary Clinton did. In fact, he did a little bit worse. He flipped Pennsylvania because he really increased the, the support for the Democratic Party in suburban areas outside of Philadelphia, like Montgomery County, and suburban areas outside of Pittsburgh. That wing of the party is really committed to this human infrastructure. And so it's people are not focused like a laser on 
infrastructure like they were during the, the New Deal because of the massive unemployment. They're now concerned about these, what began to be called in the Great Society's quality of life issues that is a, very important to building a new, a post-New Deal Democratic Party. Eric, if there was one lesson that Biden should learn from the New Deal, what would it be? Well, I think, to borrow a phrase from Roosevelt, it's not enough for people to have enough to live on. They need something to live for, right? That the agenda has to be more than mere materialism, right? It has to extend into a shared purpose, a common purpose that we can all believe in and that we can understand that we are engaged in for good reasons. One thing that Joe Biden and Franklin Roosevelt have in common is the challenge of working within the restraints of the U.S. Constitution, in particular, the role of the Supreme Court. Both presidents at the beginning of their terms faced a Supreme Court that posed a threat to their political agenda. Is there anything Biden can learn from how Franklin Roosevelt dealt with that challenge? Roosevelt's tangling with the court in his second term won Roosevelt some important gains and the New Deal some important gains because it was a warning shot that the court was not impervious to politics, that it had kind of shown its colors in coming out against the New Deal, which was so popular within the country, and Roosevelt was pushing back. And even though he didn't get his legislation through, the court began to rule differently. I think it's it's widely understood in part because of this political fracas. On the other hand, we also know that it cost Roosevelt And it cost him some support, particularly, again, among Southern Democrats, who are now able to cloak their resistance to the New Deal in a defense of the Constitution and of the institution of the Supreme Court. It's worth pointing out that that defense of the court as this sort of august institution above politics, which I'll just be frank, is utterly nonsensical based on the facts that we know, right, is one that persists today. It was nonsensical then. It is nevertheless very powerful in our culture. It's worth pointing out that the two ways uh, a political party can trim the uh, power of the Supreme Court, one by adding justices, the other by taking cases out of its jurisdiction, have both been done in American history and by only one political party, the Republicans. But somehow when the Democrats say they want to do it, it's, it's, you know, it's an attack on sacred institutions. So uh, I don't know exactly how Democrats or the Biden administration can turn that cultural phenomenon around, except by simply pointing out the bare facts, as I've sort of tried to do for you there. Eric Rachway of the University of California, Davis, and Sid Milkis of the University of Virginia. The three of us have been talking here about yet another American paradox. Key government programs from Roosevelt's New Deal era and Lyndon Johnson's Great Society era have become so much a part of American life that people somehow don't see them as government programs anymore. Social Security from the 30s and Medicare and Medicaid from the 1960s are almost as totemic as the NHS in Britain. And yet bipartisan support for them somehow doesn't translate into an acceptance of an active role for government in public life. You've been listening to The Last Best Hope, a podcast that examines America from the outside in. My name's Adam Smith. Goodbye. Goodbye.